From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's Independence Day, and we're celebrating with America the Beautiful. The story behind this song, which starts with just 30 minutes of inspiration atop Pike's Peak. Plus, how music can help veterans with PTSD cope. Then, what was it like to be one of the first first ladies, and why one of them might have been elected president if she were alive today? Also, a Colorado vet turns to photography. I want to show the beauty and the tenderness of relationship and human contact, but part of the story is the tough stuff, facing death, uh, addictions, and struggles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, an Independence Day special, and we're going to start with a moment in Colorado that shaped one of America's anthems. Not the national anthem, although some people wish it were. In any case, all it took was 30 minutes atop Pike's Peak to inspire Catherine Lee Bates, who wrote a patriotic poem called America. That was in 1893. And today, we know this as the song America the Beautiful. Bates intended her poem as a kind of prayer for a country that she thought had lost its way. According to Melinda Ponder, she's the author of Catherine Lee Bates, From Sea to Shining Sea. And Melinda, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Catherine Lee Bates was a 33-year-old English professor at Wellesley College near Boston. Uh, What brought her to Colorado Springs that summer? Well, <clears throat> it was a very exciting summer for her. She had um, had two men who the relationships didn't work out. So she was in really a lot of personal turmoil that spring of 1893. And her good friend, Catherine Coleman, who was a colleague of hers at Wellesley College, an economist, I think, suggested to her that they come out to Colorado Springs to teach summer school. And uh, Catherine Coleman lived in, her family lived in Chicago, and so they would stop at the famous Chicago World's Fair of 1893 with its White City, a fair that was celebrating America's first uh, 400 years, just an extra year late, and uh, a fair that really ask, what is America and what should we be proud of? It had many American artists uh, with paintings there, many, many, maybe 50 by Homer, Winslow Homer, many by John Singer Sargent, Frederick Remington with his images of the West. And so they stopped in Chicago on the way, and then Catherine came on into Colorado Springs a few days of her friend, and came around the bend and saw the front range of the Rocky Mountains. And I know, coming from Boston, <clears throat> Boston, where I live myself, she must have been just thrilled to see that exciting Colorado landscape. Hmm. Yes, as so many were. And so in some ways, heartbreak is part of this story. She had landed uh, a teaching gig at Colorado College, and this, this was her first trip west. 
That's right. Well, Colorado College sponsored the summer school. It was just called the Colorado Summer School. A lot of high school teachers uh, came to it to take courses. They they could sleep in tents uh, under the Rocky Mountains to save money if they needed to, huh. to sort of beef up their credentials. And the, the spa town of Colorado Springs invited its tourists to come to the classes also. And when uh, Catherine taught that summer, she was in what was then called Palmer Hall. Palmer Hall is now a different building, but this was one of the two buildings there on that prairie where she could look out uh, to the mountains and not many other buildings very different from uh, the leafy campus of Wellesley College with its lake. So we know what was going on for her personally. This was in some ways an escape from the the pain of her Eastern life. What was going on, though, in the country at that time? Because uh, really reading your book, Catherine Lee Bates, From Sea to Shining Sea, uh, my sense is, Melinda Ponder, that that she thought the country was in a in a rough place, might even have been on on the wrong track. Yes, she knew that. She had helped her friends at Wellesley help create a settlement house for immigrants in downtown in Boston. And she was very aware, especially through these friends at Wellesley who were social activists, of all the problems facing the country. In the 18, early 1890s, there was a terrible financial depression, which was putting uh, people out of work. There was a lot of conflict between native-born workers and immigrant workers who would work for uh, lower pay. There was, in, in Colorado, there was a terrible crisis over whether the silver standard would be changed to the gold standard and put all the silver mines out of work and all the miners out of work. And so there was a feeling people were just divided against each other, that the East was divided, East where the bankers and the monopolists were. Of course, this was before any of the laws against monopolies and before the income tax had been voted into being. So the East was seen as the villain taking the money from the miners and the farmers out West. And so it was a time of great turmoil. Even though she wasn't in Colorado Springs for very long, as the days passed, this financial crisis got worse and worse. And soon there were jobless men even on the fancy streets of Colorado Springs. And so, of course, she saw all of this. And this is July 1893. And and she and some of the other summer school faculty... Uh, go on a day-long trip to the top of Pikes Peak amidst amidst all the chaos and national tumult you'll talk you're talking about. And um, as I mentioned, she was only on the summit for about a half hour, and she d- dashes off a telegram to her mother: "Greetings from Pikes Peak, glorious dizzy. Wish you were here." Clearly, she was inspired by the scenery to write "America the Beautiful." What else do you think was going through her mind? Well, that trip had been touted as a a chance to get above all the turmoil on the earth. (laughs) And and it it truly, it was for her. I think that she she looked out, excuse me, when you were up there, of course, you look out and you don't see any boundaries of states. And you feel as if you are up above problems. You're in kind of a transcendent realm looking out at the vast horizons. And she thought about the, the famous painting by Alfred Bierstadt that she'd seen in Longfellow's home in Cambridge, uh, where the great Manitou brings the warring tribes together. And she said, you know, she felt she was on the gate of heaven's summit, 
is sort of the, that book was about. And so I think she just felt that it was time to speak up. And uh, one of the uh, quotations I loved was from General Palmer, who had um, really created Colorado Springs. He said, could one live in constant view of these grand mountains without being elevated by them into a lofty plane of thought and purpose? Hmm. And I think she was inspired by the landscape and also by all the independent women that she saw in Colorado at the time. Colorado was about to vote. Uh, The male voters were about to give women the vote in state elections. And all this empowered her. And and made her feel that she had something to say to the country. You write, she prayed for God to shed his grace on the nation, lifting it above its financial and social crises to a more ethereal realm like that atop Pike's Peak. Uh, But Bates never intended her original four-stanza poem to become a song. How did it become a song? (laughs) Well, that's right. And so it, she, it was published actually two summers later in 1895 on the 4th of July as a patriotic poem. And, uh, but during the, the next decade, people began, they wanted many more patriotic songs to sing. Nobody huh. really liked the Star Spangled Banner, and it was so <laughs> difficult to sing, as we know. And so they began setting her words to various melodies, and they began changing her words around to make them simpler to sing. And so in 1904, after this is after the Spanish-American War, after the United States had become a global imperialist, and we were still fighting in the Philippines in the, the dreadful, bloody insurrection there where waterboarding uh, began, uh, she felt that, I think, if people were going to sing her song, first of all, she did make the words simpler. And second of all, she added the words about brotherhood from sea to shining sea. I think she felt if we were going to acquire these territories yeah. um, globally, that we should get our own house in order. And also, a lot of the discussion about whether we should really acquire the Philippines was over racism, what was going to happen if the Filipinos could vote in our elections. And there it was a time, of course, when there were many lynchings in our own country. So she felt that the ideals of brotherhood were something that she prayed would be shed <laughs> and that we would remember those. And, and it was a prayer for God to help. It, uh, it does help seem the country. like every couple of years there is talk about replacing the Star Spangled Banner with America the Beautiful. There have been some attempts even by members of Congress, but those bills never go anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. And that's in part because the Star Spangled Banner is notoriously difficult to sing. I think it never mentions the word America. Um, so uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to just hear a famous version of America the Beautiful. And you know, when I was in school, we used to sing it something like this. Listen here. Oh, beautiful, far spacious skies, far amber waves of rain, far purple mountains. Ten majesties over the fruited plain. But now wait a minute. I'm talking. 
favorite version of the song Melinda Ponder? Well, I have to just say, you know, his Ray Charles version is so passionate and so heartfelt that uh, it just is so moving. And when I hear it, it reminds me really of the first chapter of Genesis, you know, that God looked around and saw everything that he had done and it was good. And I'm glad Ray Charles feels Uh, The the country is so good, but I have had people say to me, you know, I don't like that song because the country has a lot of problems. So I hope when people read my biography, they'll learn about the problems the country had when Catherine wrote it. And, um, you know, think about the words she actually used, (laughs) which were not in the past tense. You know, she prayed that God would shed his grace on the country And I think when you see the original version, America, that she wrote out here in Colorado, you can see it's much more sort of oriented toward the future than the words uh, that she revised it into to 1904. So So what is is your favorite? Well, I have uh, on my website, I have the uh, Indianapolis Children's Choir singing it since I first learned it in fourth grade in Indianapolis. And I just like a simple version that without any descants, et cetera. Hmm. Well, I'm pleased to tell you we have a little surprise, which is your favorite version. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Melinda Ponder is the author of Catherine Lee Bates, From Sea to Shining Sea. We spoke last year. Sometimes our darkest moments are best expressed through music. Take, for instance, these military veterans from Nashville who worked with a top country music writer. Over there, I knew what I was fighting for. With the good guys, with the bad guys, kick some butt and win a war. But they don't need me now, and these days it's not so clear. What I'm fighting for back here. These vets are part of a nonprofit called Operation Song, and a psychiatrist in the western slope town of Montrose has brought the program to his community, which is something of a haven for vets. And Dr. David Good, welcome. Thank you much. I appreciate your having me. I'm reminded of something 
The late composer Leonard Bernstein once said, Music can move the unmovable and communicate the unknowable. Are you talking about that kind of deep dive into a patient's traumatic experiences with this music program? I am. Very much so. The veterans are able to access memories, emotions through the music in ways that talk therapy or other modalities may not allow. Uh, So we see a lot of benefit from the music therapy. They access memories that they might not in talk therapy. You've seen that borne out? Yes, I've seen that borne out with music therapy. I've seen it borne out with journaling, uh, other kinds of art therapy. Uh, where talk therapy, you just the, you can meet with them for many sessions and still not get anywhere. And then they can access it through the music or other kinds of art therapy. I have to think that's especially important in dealing with trauma, where the body's functions serve to maybe... Uh, squirrel away a memory to lock it up, and and this is a way of accessing it. That's true. And uh, in many respects, the healing or the closure that comes from the music therapy uh, is more of a sensory experience. It's not just cognitively being aware or telling yourself you're over it. You feel it. You feel that it is now a memory and it doesn't have the emotional power that it used to have over you. Interesting. I think any of us who've gotten goosebumps when we've listened to a song have had that experience. Exactly. Without violating confidentiality, can you think of a specific veteran that you think would really benefit from this approach? Yes. uh, I have someone in mind uh, that has uh, significant PTSD as well as a TBI. Traumatic brain injury. Exactly. And I think he would be a wonderful uh, candidate. What I want to do is make sure that each veteran that is part of our retreat uh, has a therapist to be able to process uh, what comes out of the music therapy. Uh, The music therapy is only one tool. uh, And once the emotions and memories start coming more to the surface, then I would like a therapist to be available for that veteran to help process what's going on. Well, that's fascinating. So the songwriting can't happen in isolation. There needs to be therapy along with it. Uh, On Operation Song's website, there's a quote from a veteran named Jimmy, and Jimmy says, Operation Song did more for me than a shrink could do in two years. Uh, I don't imagine you love the term shrink, but I wonder how that makes you feel. Uh, Actually, uh, it just validates what I'm saying. Uh Uh, That the talk therapy was getting nowhere uh, for him. And with the music therapy, he was able to cut through and get to where he needed to be to heal. You have listened to a lot of veteran songs. Are they all grim, or do some veterans share lighthearted experiences of their service? Some lighthearted. There's one in particular I really enjoy. It's called Honor Guard. And uh, this gentleman was... um, part of the 175-man honor guard for General MacArthur. And that is just a wonderful song to listen to. It's clear how proud he is. And he was the last of the 175 still alive. Uh, Another one uh, speaks about his tour of duty with the Navy. And he just really emphasizes how the Navy set him on the right path for his whole life. Uh, Those are very positive songs. 
Goodness, I think of a Navy song we came across. I think we've got a snippet of it. Not knowing if we'd live or die, sometimes we just laugh. Sing along to Marty Robbins, old town Johnny Cash. Sometimes we'd get lucky, all the tank that the tiger beer. By the time we got to Saga, case or two might disappear. Three, four, The veterans tell their stories, I think, to some of country music's best songwriters in Nashville. Can you give us a sense of how the writer and the veteran work together? Yes. Uh, when we have the retreat, uh, a veteran will pair up with a musician and a songwriter. They will go off, and the veteran will tell his story. The songwriter is then putting the essence of the story into 80 words. The following day, they have the song written, and it's played for the family, the veterans, and friends that have been invited. What I want to do is make sure that each veteran that is part of our retreat uh, has a therapist to be able to process what comes out of the music therapy. Once the emotions and memories start coming more to the surface, then I would like a therapist to be available for that veteran to help process what's going on. Uh, So just in case there's someone that is feeling overwhelmed, we've got support staff there for them. It's been lovely talking to you, Doctor. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate your having me. Dr. David Good is a Montrose psychiatrist who works with veterans. He believes turning trauma into song can be a powerful tool. We spoke in February. The first ever Operation Song Colorado Retreat is scheduled for July 17th. In the early days of the Republic, it wasn't clear what the wife of the president should be called. Sometimes it was the Presidentess or Mrs. President. Martha Washington was often referred to as Lady Washington. Like her husband George, she had to navigate a brand new role. So what was it like to be one of the first first ladies? And how much has the role changed since then? Well, historian Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver has written a book about Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, and Dolly Madison. And welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Of course, uh, the Americans had just defeated the British in the Revolutionary War. How did that rejection of the monarchy help shape the role of First Lady? I mean, you, you didn't want to come across as too highfalutin, right? Correct. So really what they had to navigate this new role was to try to figure out how to maintain a regal demeanor without a throne or a crown. So everything, ceremonies, clothing, what food they served, all were indicative of the manner that the government was unfo- was unfolding. Interesting. You had to be regal, but you couldn't be too queen-like. And this, as you say, came down to what they wore, where the fabrics they wore came from, and even the kind of chair they sat in. Tell me about that. 
Well, several things. Let's go back maybe to the fashion first, okay. because I think we don't realize how much um, fashion made a political statement at the time. In England, um, kings and queens um, had ceremonies that had been developed over centuries, and they wore elaborate costumes when King George and Queen Charlotte were coronated. Um, one of the witnesses said that Queen Charlotte wore a jewel-encrusted gown with pearls, for example, as big as cherries. Okay. The train of her dress was carried by her lady-in-waiting. Um, a canopy was held over her head by 16 barons. It was made of what they called cloth of gold, gold fibers, and it was a major contrast to what happened in the newly formed United States. George Washington, when he was inaugurated, um, was dressed in a simple um, brown suit that was manufactured from cloth from Connecticut. Uh, and his wife, Martha, was not even at his side at the time of the inauguration. And when she finally arrived in New York about a month later, she wore an elegant but simple dress, and the local newspaper um, reported very, with great admiration that she was clothed in the manufacture of our country. Of that, our country. Right. And, and so this became incredibly political, and these first first ladies really were under the microscope this, this way. Uh, the public gauging whether they were American enough and had separated enough from the monarchy. And there, at one point, the question is raised whether Martha Washington, during a political salon, is sitting in too high a chair if it looks too throne-like. Correct. So she actually um, sat on a platform in a, I guess, a comfortable but not unusual chair. But many people criticized the Washingtons for bringing back monarchy. That was too much like a throne, even though there was really nothing throne-like about it. And Abigail Adams, who hated the press and felt that they were very often very critical and unfair, um, really shared with her husband her feeling that everything the Washingtons did were really with the best intentions in all innocence. You write about the close friendship that Martha Washington and Abigail Adams formed. We uh, will talk about that a little bit later, but I think it's really important to understand the role of women in general in the late 1700s in this country, the constraints on them. They really didn't enjoy the full rights of citizens at that point. They did not have legal rights, and um, they were not married women, were not allowed to engage in any legal contracts. They couldn't even write wills. So they were, um, they were really operating under the laws of coverture, um, really what that, that means covered literally by covered by their husbands, correct. So even though none of the three women would be what we would call feminists today, and um, I think the word actually applying to them is really an anachronism, I think we have to be very careful not to examine the, the past from a presentist type of lens. But um, Abigail certainly um, believed very firmly in education for women, and she also really tried to influence her husband in terms of legal rights for women. I want to talk about their political involvement, because as First Lady Martha Washington, you write, is credited with introducing the country's first political salon. What was a political salon and why were they important? 
So we're talking about the days before television, radio. Um, certainly print is coming into its own, many more newspapers. But the way people interacted was really one-on-one. And the American salons really were an arena for politicians to kind of experiment with their ideas, try to persuade one another to come to their um, side. And in that very fragile new republic where there were very soon great divisions between the main, the main, the only two political parties at the time, the Federalists and the Jeffersonian Republicans, um, trying to establish unity was a goal um, that was often elusive. And it was often a task that the first ladies saw themselves as fulfilling, uh, helping their husbands in this way. Well, uh, several things. I believe that they really felt their job was to burnish the um, reputations of their husbands. I think many of them uh, acted as kind of informal PR agents, um, the something that we have more formally, obviously, today. But I think they saw that these salons and dinners and entertainments were a way to move forward the agendas for their husband's um, term in office. Which may not be an overtly political act, but is absolutely one with political consequences. Uh, You say the term first lady probably didn't come until much later when Mary Todd Lincoln was in the role. And you note that there's really never been an official mandate for the role of first lady. It's always been something crafted by the woman who holds the position. Uh, Jeannie, as first lady, Martha Washington declared that she felt like a state prisoner. Did she give any examples or further explanation well, of why? Well, I want to put that in a little perspective. I think one of the great values of studying history actually is to put current events in perspective. So I think what we see is from the very first, both the president and first lady were under constant public scrutiny. So that was something that Martha did not welcome. Um, she was, when um, Washington was elected, they were both in their late 50s. Um, being in your late 50s in the 18th century was older than being in your late 50s um, today. She felt that they were destined to hopefully live out their lives in tranquility in Mount Vernon. So first of all, she did not like moving to New York. and The capital at the time. Yes, the um, temporary seat of government at the time. And she did not like her social interactions being dictated by the president and cabinet members. And so she wrote her niece and said that she felt often like a state prisoner. That's not unusual. Um, uh, Harry Truman often referred to the White House as the great white prison. Mm -hmm. So probably most um, presidential couples have had very similar outlooks. It seems that this view of the experience of being a first lady is what brings Martha Washington and Abigail Adams closer together. They become uh, quite good friends. Um, But compared to them, Dolly Madison really comes across as larger than life. I mean, you refer to her as a celebrity of her day. What do you think she brought to that still fledgling office that the others hadn't? Well, Martha was, first of all, an experienced hostess um, who actually knew how to occupy her position 
then Abigail Adams was probably the most intellectual of the three first first ladies. Um, she was a political theorist in her own right. She tussles with the press often in defense of her husband. Correct. And she really um, is extremely well-read, um, probably, as one of her contemporaries said, the most knowledgeable woman of her time in terms of politics and um, culture. I understand that you think she'd be president if she were alive today. Yes. I think that if um, women had been allowed to run for office, um, she probably would have been even more popular than her husband, John, who could be a little prickly sometimes. Okay. Um, Abigail certainly had charm, even though she was a very strong-willed woman. But I think um, what... Dolly Madison was able to do was really, she was very politically savvy, and she also had great charisma. And that combination of the two enabled her to really move her husband forward. Madison could be charming in small groups, but he was pretty shy and retiring generally, and she humanized him, and she was probably the key to his political success. It is really uh, Dolly Madison who helps shape early Washington, what became Washington, D.C. She and her husband are really the first administration to install themselves permanently in, I think, what was called Washington Mm -hmm. City back then. I I wasn't aware of how much she shaped the city. You know, I want to note that um, the first three first ladies don't represent the first three administrations because Thomas Jefferson had been elected as a widower. Correct. And um, even though Thomas Jefferson's daughter Martha occasionally acted as hostess in the White House, it was really Dolly. It wasn't the White House at that time, the president's house. Um, it was really Dolly who experienced her apprenticeship, apprenticeship so to speak, um, as first lady because Um, She was um, very prominent as Madison's wife at the time, and she and Jefferson got along very well. And Jefferson, although, again, a charming, um, brilliant personality, tended to be very informal consciously in the White House. Um, He was the head of the what was then considered um, Republican Democrats, Democratic Republicans. They hadn't um, arrived at their final versus the Federalists. He really emphasized um, the common man and tried to be very informal. Um, He famously greeted guests in his slippers. A lot of um, contradictions in personality. He also brought, I think, over 600 bottles of fine wine back from France. Um, So um, there were some things that um, were way beyond the realm of the common man that he um, exhibited. But in any case, um, often um, Dolly would be there to smooth over differences, both in um, Jefferson's administration and in Madison's. In Jefferson's as well. Interesting. And Eugenie, I was fascinated to read in your book that New Jersey gave some women the vote briefly Mm -hmm. in the 1790s. I think it was only for women who were landed. Is that right? Yeah. And then it was quickly taken away. Uh, I want to ask about suffrage and whether Martha Washington, Abigail Adams or Dolly Madison had their eye in some regard on women being able to vote. I think only in a very limited fashion. Again, since um, Abigail Adams certainly 
was an advocate of legal rights for women. I don't think that she realistically envisioned political rights um, at the time, but I think she thought it might um, really occur down the horizon. She did write her sister about the women in New Jersey who were allowed to vote. Um, She looked at that with admiration. Um, But she also um, really was a woman of her era in many ways. She felt that men and women had very distinct, separate roles. And at one point she wrote, um, all honor is really in following your role to the best of your capacity. But that doesn't mean um, that she also didn't support um, an idea in the future of women voting. What she did believe was that even though women didn't hold the reins of government at her time, she felt that they should have a voice in how the um, journey went forward. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. It's always a pleasure to be here, Ryan. Jeannie Abrams of the University of Denver wrote First Ladies of the Republic, Martha Washington, Abigail Adams, Dolly Madison, and the creation of an iconic American role. We spoke last year. When we come back, training veterans to shoot pictures. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Life can be pretty complicated for people who have marijuana-related offenses on their criminal record from before legalization. I had sold weed to survive, and now these rich white guys that hadn't lived the same life that I did were able to come in and really capitalize. On the latest episode of On Something, what happens to the people who may be wondering why they're still on the wrong side of the law, even though the law has changed? Subscribe to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Welcome back on this 4th of July to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After serving in the military, how do veterans see the world? One way to answer that is to have them take pictures. It's why the Colorado Photographic Arts Center teaches veterans to use cameras. Our producer, Michelle Fulcher, met one of these veterans. Amy Forestieri documented her work with Jesus on Colfax, a program that serves the homeless and those living in poverty. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Michelle. So describe one of the pictures that we're seeing here. Tell me who's in the scene and what we're looking at. It's the first real picture I took when I joined the Jesus on Colfax ministry team. A man had passed away in his motel room. He had been deceased for four days before anybody noticed um, and passed away without any known friends or family. So the community got together and had a memorial and did a balloon release for him. And it was so humbling and amazing to witness. And in the photo, you can't tell who is a pastor, who is uh, maybe struggling with a a condition, a disability, an addiction. Everybody looks the same and that there's no haves, have-nots. We're just us. That made an impact. And um, I actually signed up to be part of the team that day as well as a photographer. And that was my favorite photograph and and difficult, so it's not wonderfully maybe composed. I got lucky, but it made me fall in love with the the black and white and being in the neighborhood and kind of the raw street photography style. This is one of the early photographs you took. How did you put it together? Luck. (laughs) I, uh, I really had no idea even how to really focus a camera, and it was night. So it was almost pitch dark when we uh, did the balloon release, and so I had to play with a bunch of knobs and take thousands of pictures, and it it just sort of happened and uh, turned out beautiful and made me fall in love with wanting to learn more about photography as well as the community and finding ways to combine the two. 
So you're part of this veterans workshop. Do you think that veterans see things through a different filter, through different eyes in a way? Yes, absolutely. Um, well, even when you start, the playing field is level. They break you down and build you up. So everybody kind of knows what it feels like to start at the bottom and, and work their way up. That's and in then, training you're yes, talking Yes, in about. training. And then you have such a mishmash of cultures, uh, faith backgrounds, education. Uh, and then you combine that with going abroad and, and mixing in different cultures and communities. You just kind of understand and appreciate what we have going in America. I think get more sensitive to the hardships and the struggles that others face. I think you're a little bit more accepting, uh, flexible, and open-minded, and that's what I've seen in the veteran community, and there's a lot of veterans on Colfax. Talk to me about when you walked in to this class. What made you interested? Well, I'd been an engineer for a long time, and I actually had been just taking pictures. And I thought, well, I'll take a, a class because I was transitioning out of the engineering world. And, and then the veterans program came along. I thought, well, the worst they could say was no. And so I signed up and walked in and met phenomenal people and saw what they could create. I thought, I, I want to do that. I've been in love ever since, but it's only been about eight months. Where did you serve? I served in the Air Force from 96 to 2000 at Buckley Air Force Base. I did four years with the Air Force, and then I became um, a contractor and worked for the Department of Defense, so a total 20 years with the government. And then my husband is a retired Marine, and so we uh, and deep military uh, history and family and connectedness to the community. And this was an amazing opportunity to, to continue to stay linked in with the veterans. And so why did you leave that job with the government? I loved it. I was a systems engineer, a strategic planner, uh, but about three years ago, my stomach kind of stopped working. I have a condition called gastroparesis, so my stomach is pretty paralyzed, and I became primarily dependent on a feeding tube, and after a while, doing the nine-to-five standard cubicle kind of a job was too hard my body, and I have a, a wonderful husband and daughter, and they, they needed they needed me to be healthy, and they urged me to, to hang up my engineering hat, I guess my pencil and calculator, and, uh, and try something new. So I completely went the opposite side, the, the arts, and I love new uh, techniques and ways to express ideas. How did you decide to take pictures of these folks from Jesus on Colfax? I'd heard of Jesus on Colfax Ministries, a pastor from Aurora. His wife had moved into the motel community on, on East Colfax in Aurora, and were uh, just showing up and loving people. And I, I had that seed in my mind and, and thought, if I get into this veterans program, I want my very first project to be a gift back to God. I, I said, I'm going to cold call them and see if I could have my first project be about their ministry. So I was accepted into the veterans program and cold called the pastor and his wife. And about four and a half months ago, we linked up. And it's my favorite place, pretty much my favorite place in the world to be. And I'm there all the time now. How do you keep your distance as a photographer? So you've got these two roles, you belong to the ministry, and you're taking pictures, which is kind of an external kind of role. I, I actually didn't separate them. I believed that if I wanted to see what God wanted me to see and feel and experience all that, I needed to be part of the community first before I really even started taking pictures. So I stayed in the motel, I spent a lot of time on Colfax, and I just 
created relationships where people were comfortable with me using the camera, and I finally just sort of kind of blended in. But I think it was the personal connection that gave me an access that I would have never got if I approached it as just a photographer. These are people who are going through really tough times. Do they want their pictures taken? Some. For the pictures that I've um, put up or I've shared, I make sure and get permission. I explain why I'm taking them, what I'm doing with them, and ask for permission. So I have people who don't want their face out there. Um, I take the picture and give them a print and, and give it back, and it's still, they've allowed me into their stories. So it's, it's a gift for me. So I, a lot of these gifts I'll never be able to share, and I'm, I'm fine with that. I, I appreciate that. Do the folks who agree to this and see their pictures, what's their reaction? They love them. I show them to them first. And, and they were happy. A lot of people were very camera shy. And I went there to show the best of what people had. I wanted them to see them the way I saw them. So when I gave them back a picture that showed their beauty, they were very more comfortable. And it's neat to go into the motel rooms and see the pictures hanging up. And even if nobody else sees them, they like them enough to put them on the wall. And that's a huge reward. I mean, these photos, as I'm looking at them, they're not... A- pretty in the way that we would think about pretty. They're, they're gritty, as we would expect on the street. Mm-hmm. Is it important to you to sort of show the, the problems, the challenges that these folks face? It's very important because that's a huge part of the story. I want to show the beauty and the tenderness and the importance of relationship and human contact. But part of the story is the tough stuff, facing death, uh, addictions, and struggles. And these are struggles that a lot of us deal with and face. Many people just have more resources to hide them. So if the story really needs to be told by showing something that isn't glamorous and is hard to show, then I want to be able to show that in a way that brings respect, though, to the the people who are in the photograph. Uh, Is there a person or a situation that's really stuck with you as you've done this work? There, there are many people that are permanently imprinted in my heart. One of my dearest friends, she's in one of the pictures, she's holding hands with the pastor praying. She, she loves me so much and encourages my work and cheers me on and, and asks to critique the, the photographs and I'm so thankful to be able to, to show her off. Uh, when I'm missing online for maybe a few days, she saves up money to call me. When I'm sick or gone, Colfax notices. Yeah. These are difficult situations. Is there somebody that's just made you terrifically sad or given you a sense of what they're going through? Yes. Uh, one of the gentlemen in the, the pictures, um, he's praying with uh, members of our team. Uh, I actually photographed his and end-of-life journey. So through my camera, I watched him uh, lose his battle to cancer and uh, prepare to, to, to move on to, to heaven and watch him uh, just mourn for those he's leaving behind. And it was very sad to, to just watch that and very humbling and beautiful at the same time. And so I watched him, prayed with him, held his hand, and then was there to bury him. What sets your photography apart I think because I have really deep backstories. I didn't start as a photographer. I think everything is, I have the story first, 
most of the time. And then the visuals, they're different because they're more raw and native. Um, it's also because I'm really inexperienced as well, which is fine with me. But they're, I think they're more raw and native and they're kind of, they are closer to the world that I see. Then maybe I'll, people have a little bit of the sense of the beauty that I see in others. Will you continue with the photography? Oh, yes. I have no idea how I could stop now. I'm, I'm hooked and I don't know how I could leave... Colfax, I have thousands and thousands of pictures, and I want to put a lot of these stories together in a book. Is there another topic you'd like to pursue? I think eventually I might um, maybe do a project on gastroparesis and some of the challenges that uh, Mike... That's the illness you have. Yes, the community that I uh, have a lot of contact with, gastroparesis and feeding tubes, celiac disease. That one's because it's so personal and I can't really divorce myself from that topic. Figured that might be a project for later on. But I like the human stories. I like the organizations that have an amazing vision but may need some help on uh, capturing it visually. Or maybe I could help bring that to life by adding the context of the photos. Amy Forestieri speaking with Colorado Matters producer Michelle Fulcher back in January. Forestieri learned to take photos through the Colorado Photographic Arts Center the next workshop's in August. It's already filled up, but we're told there will be more workshops next year. Thanks for spending some of your Independence Day with us. I'm Ryan Warner, and this is Colorado Matters from CPR News.